0: Uh, While well, we all turn to the, uh, the book of 2 Peter, it's near the back of your Bible, right before Revelation, just a few pages before, and what we're going to read today as we finish the book of 2 Peter is going to sound a little bit like we did stumble into Revelation. And so uh, let's, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 10 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I said, sounds like we've stumbled a little into Revelation, haven't we? We're going to be hearing about the end times, and and you know I have to talk about something to illustrate the end times, and there's no lack, no shortage of movies that I could point to because disaster films about the end times are, are so popular. But there's one in particular I'd like to make note of this morning, that classic end of the world movie. You know what I'm talking about. Dr. Seuss's Horton Hears a Who. I'm sure you think of that whenever you think of the end of the world, but that's exactly what it's about. Whether you're talking about the book or the movie, it's a story of an elephant named Horton who sees a speck floating by, and he hears a voice on that speck. And as he catches the little speck of dust, he finds out there's a whole civilization living on that little speck. And he's talking to the mayor of Whoville. And in that conversation, it Horton says, "Hey, you're just on a tiny little speck floating around in space. You're so vulnerable. You could fall in the water, and, and your whole world would drown. Somebody could step on you and squish your entire world. You are in danger." And in the movie version, it goes on to elaborate on what happens because the mayor of Whoville upon recognizing the danger, he doesn't ask, well, when's this going to happen? He doesn't ask, well, what's it going to look like when this happened? He just needs to know one thing. What do I do? How do I live if the world is coming to an end? He can't just go to the dentist as usual. He can't just sit around the dinner table with his kids like nothing's happening. He can't go on and plan the community parade for that week like he was supposed to because the world is coming to an end. And that's... A good lesson for us. Because even if no one believed him, his life had to change. Everyone in the world is affected by their vision of and their expectations of the future. Someone who believes that we're just made of stardust and that after death we cease to exist is going to live very differently from someone who believes that we're going to be reincarnated in another life form, and either punished or rewarded for the way we live today. And both of them will live very differently from one who follows a Christian view, that we will inhabit a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So Peter ends his letter talking about the end times. (coughs) And naturally, we're very curious about what he says. Talking about the end times is as entertaining as it is controversial. And there's many volumes of books and web pages and seminars devoted to unpacking in detail what happens in the end. But we're not going to do that because Peter doesn't do that. Note the balance of how Peter speaks of the end. He gives us one phrase on the timing. He gives us maybe two verses on what it's going to look like and the rest of what he has to say is how we should live in light of all this because that's what matters about the end as the mayor of hooville knew it's not the when or the how that matters it's what we do because of it and so as peter unpacks for us our expectations about the end there's three things i want us to see that help us understand how to live because of the end because that's what really matters The first that Peter shows us is that this time ends with judgment. Now, like I said, we get one phrase about the timing of the end. In verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, Peter is either quoting Paul or he's referencing Jesus or probably both because Paul in 1 Thessalonians said concerning times and seasons, you don't need to have anything written to you because you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And in this, Paul and Peter are both probably referring to what Jesus said when he talked about the end times in Matthew 24. <clears throat> he says, know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, you know, if the thief had scheduled, hey, I'm going to rob your house at about 2.30 a.m., he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Point is simply this: We don't know when Jesus will return, and Jesus warns us. Jesus says, "Because you don't know the time, you have to live ready. You can't put off readiness for a later date." Oh no, well, I'm looking at the way the nations are working, and I know that the end time is still a few years. No, there's nothing like that. That's nonsense. Jesus says he's going to return at a day or an hour. No one knows or expects. And so we always have to be ready for his return. We can't put off changing our life. We can't put off obedience. We can't put off following him until maybe we're a little bit closer to the end because that doesn't work. Peter uses an important phrase when he describes the end. He calls it the day of the Lord, which is this loaded, packed phrase in scripture all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is the time when God the mighty king returns to rescue his people in their distress by bringing judgment on his enemies and punishing them for what they've done. The prophets usually describe it in the most cataclysmic terms possible. It's the sun and moon turning into blood. It's mountains falling down. It's, it's the nations and, and the world just crumbling apart. That's it, language to describe how huge and, and distressing and thorough this is going to be. It is God wiping out the old order of things, removing from his creation any trace or stain of sin and injustice and evil and rebellion and death. So Peter picks up that imagery in verses 10 and 12. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn." Now, that, that, all that fire and melting and dissolving imagery is, is pointing back to something Peter talked about in a previous letter. It's this image common in Scripture of refining. When you have a precious metal like gold, it can be laced with impurities, with bits of lead or other metals, and you need to get them out of there. And the only way to do that is you melt it. You melt it down, and the impurities separate from the gold and then you scoop them away. And Peter's using this imagery of what God is going to do is all the impurities, all that does not belong in his good and perfect creation will be melted down and scooped away until only what is good and right remains. And the way that happens, the language he uses is exposure. See, in verse 10, he says, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When you melt down a precious metal, all that impurity that was hiding in there and couldn't be seen by the naked eye, it now can be seen. It's exposed. And when it's exposed, it can be removed. What that means is that when God judges His creation, no mask can hide evil deeds No injustice will escape judgment. No amount of of pious living will be able to hide any evil in our hearts. All the illusions and all the deceptions will be melted away and truth will be revealed. It says Jesus warned his followers in Luke Luke 8, verse 17. He said, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light people, that's supposed to make you uncomfortable. The idea that the unflinching, undeceivable, holy gaze of a righteous judge will be fixed on every deed, every word, and every work, and then it will be judged. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. All that is not pleasing to God, anything in our hearts that is opposed to Him, anything that builds another kingdom apart from God's kingdom will be burned and destroyed, and you have one hope in that moment. One hope in that moment when God judges the world. Your hope is that God judges you based on what Jesus did, not on what you did. We sang it earlier. You might not have noticed. You might have just been singing along and didn't think about the words, but we sang Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. I think we have the words maybe on a slide. Jesus, your blood and righteousness are my beauty and my glorious dress, my clothing midst flaming worlds. That's what the song is talking about. The flaming worlds that Peter is describing, the flames of judgment, midst flaming worlds. If I am dressed, arrayed in the righteousness of Jesus, then with joy, I'll lift up my head. What that means is if, if I'm walking into a day of judgment and I'm expecting that, that I will be clothed, that I will look okay because I'm putting on a stack of righteous deeds, that I, have, that I have given this much to good causes, that I have said these right things, I believe these right doctrines, I've gone to this right church, I've been a part of these good ministries, I've done all these good things, that's my clothing, that's what I'm wearing before God, he will judge it and it will be burned because even our righteousness are as filthy rags in His sight, He says. But if I have taken upon the righteousness of Christ, as Scripture decides it, describes it, being clothed in what He has done, then when God brings judgment, He looks at me and He does not see me. He sees His Son. He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus. That's my only hope when this time ends in judgment because Jesus has taken the fire of judgment that I deserved and clothed me in his perfection so that when every deed and every work is exposed, my only chance, my only hope is that I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And in response, what Peter calls us, how he calls us to live in response to that in verses 11 and 12 is this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since this is how it ends, ladies and gentlemen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Or kids, since mom and dad told you to clean your room and warned you of the consequences and you hear the key in the door, they're home, what should you be doing in your room right now? Since your boss told you I'm coming in on Friday to check the numbers on that account, what are you doing Thursday? You're making sure everything's in order. When we know there's going to be judgment, we live a certain way to be ready for judgment. We live in a way that makes sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Now, that sounds an awful light, a lot like I'm not living with Jesus' righteousness, but my own righteousness, doesn't it? But that's only if we haven't been reading the rest of 2 Peter Because he's been saying this all along, especially in chapter one. He's been talking about in chapter one, verse 10, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And he said that after describing all the ways that we should be living with virtue and kindness and gentleness and brotherly affection and love and self-control and perseverance. Because when we do these things, we're not making ourselves elect. We're not making ourselves saved by doing them we're showing what God has already done. We're, we've been clothed with Christ, and now we're living in a way that shows that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Without that, we have no assurance. A Christian faith that doesn't grow and produce fruit, a life of disobedient living, regardless of what we say with our words, has no assurance that it will withstand the fires of judgment. Because it's not bearing the fruit. It's not expressing the salvation that is given in Christ. This time will end in judgment. And we are called to live ready for that. But don't forget, people of God, that judgment is not the end. Now that seems weird because I just said how many times that this time ends in judgment. This time, this era ends in judgment. But judgment is not the end for us. And it's not the end for the world, because though this era ends in judgment, after judgment comes something else. And so the next thing Peter points us to is this time that ends in judgment leads to renewal. This time leads to renewal. In verse 13, he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I would suggest that one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith is heaven. Far too many of us, even raised in the church, were raised to believe that heaven is is this kingdom in the distant skies where after the earth is completely destroyed and exists no more, we go off into this floaty cloud land where like disembodied spirits, we float around in happiness. And when we read verses like the ones we just looked at a few minutes ago about the heavenly bodies melting and being dissolved, it's understandable to conclude that whatever our final destination is, it can't be here because this place is toast, okay? Or as my, one of my college roommates and I used to say very often when we'd get frustrated by our grades or our empty bank accounts, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not, that's no way to live, because that was bad theology there. Because we have to take the whole view of Scripture into account, not just two verses from 2 Peter chapter 3. But we have to look at is passages like in Isaiah 25, when God declared to his people their future hope. He describes it this way. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The removal of death? the feast of God's victory, the end of tears, this is God describing heaven, his eternal kingdom. And where is it? Twice, he says, right here on this mountain. And he ends it by saying he's gonna take all these bad things away from the earth. So that when John, the apostle John in Revelation saw his vision of of the eternal kingdom, he describes it like this in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God's plan for his people is not to take us away from earth to a new home, but to remake the earth into the home it was always meant to be. But how can there be a heavens and earth if they've been melted? Interesting problem. How can we have new glorified bodies if we have died and decayed. It's the same principle. God makes all things new. In Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne, this is after the new city, the new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven from God to the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell. He said, he was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Grammar is important. Syntax matters. Syntax, the word order, the way that words fit together. God doesn't say, I am making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new again. It's not the end of the world. REM had it right. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine about that. Some of you get that. It's not the end of all things and we have to start over. It's the end of the world as we know it, as we experience it. God is going to make it new. Just as he makes our bodies new at the resurrection, the bodies of our loved ones who have been in their graves for long ages past, their bodies will be made new and recognizable again. And likewise, the creation that we now live in will be melted and dissolved in judgment and made new and recognizable. And every good thing carries on into God's kingdom and this has already started. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are told that if anyone is in Christ, he is, not will be, is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Those who have already turned to Jesus, who have, who have forsaken and turned away from their sin and their self-worship and are following God, trusting what Jesus has done, they are made into something new, a new creation already again, Peter's point in this whole letter has been that this new creation, if we are in fact made new, there will be a look to it. It will look a certain way, becoming more like Christ. So after holding out the promise of renewal, he goes on in verse 14 and says, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. If you know this new creation is your destiny, you have to live in a way that gets you ready for that. Think of a a young couple that that is getting ready to get married and that that big life change is on the horizon. They don't wait until that moment to start changing everything about their lives. No, there's this whole process of leading up to it where you begin to change how you handle finances, where you begin to change your your future plans and your calendar, where you begin to change how you live and, and, and everything about your life starts to change to get you ready for the moment when that big change happens. And that's how it is for us. Since you are waiting for these, since you are getting ready for a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, start living in preparation for that. God calls us to start right now living in a way that fits the new world that he's getting ready for us. How strange it is to change your view of money so that it's not intended to satisfy your cravings but is intended to further God's purposes. How odd for us to pray, pray for and to bless and be kind to the people that are rude and mean and hurtful to us. How unusual that we would reject popular and culturally acceptable understandings of right and wrong in favor of an unpopular ethic that comes from God's unchanging word. How weird that we would declare that our hope for the future is not in this or that candidate or this or that law or this or that movement or ideology, but our hope is firmly fixed in a coming king. Since you are waiting for the renewal of all things, be diligent to live consistent with the world that you're waiting for now. In Christ, you've been made new. In Christ, you will be fully renewed to fit and to match the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Until then, Live consistent with the righteousness that you're waiting for. So as Peter draws his letter to a close, he makes extra clear what we've been touching on again and again, that this time of waiting for the Lord's return is not just about waiting. Waiting in the sense of sitting in the doctor's office waiting to be seen or waiting in a movie theater for the show to start. The time we spend waiting is to be spent wisely and well. Because this time that ends in judgment and then leads to renewal, this time has a purpose. And that's the third thing I want us to see in Peter's words here, that this time has a purpose. Verse 15, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This goes back to what we looked at in more detail last week. The reminder that God is not just taking his sweet time delaying his return. He has not forgotten about the plan. He hasn't fallen asleep and he's not ignorant. God has not ended things yet because his work isn't done yet. The important work of salvation. And so in verse 9, we saw that it said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, his children. Not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. And if you remember last week, if you were here, I used the illustration of of how many times I've been on a flight where where I'm running up at the last second with my ticket in hand, and you're watching that flight attendant, and you're hoping that it's not the one that's just going to close the door because you're late. You want that flight attendant who's going to hold open the door until everyone gets on board. And that's what God is doing. Waiting For everyone, everyone who is going to repent needs to repent. And God is patient, mercifully, lovingly, patiently waiting. So count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's the purpose of this time from God's perspective. But there's a purpose for you and for me as well. For those who have repented, those who have returned home to the Father, there are two things that Peter mentions. Two things Peter mentions that we're supposed to do until Jesus returns during this time of waiting. Number one, stay faithful. Number two, grow. I want to look at both of those in turn. First, Peter warns us to stay faithful, warning the church not to allow ourselves to be misled or to be deceived. Listen to verses 15 and 16. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. There is a lot we could look at here in detail. The fact that Peter considers Paul's letters to be scripture is very significant using the same word he would use to describe the Old Testament letters or uh, books. Also that Peter, Peter, you know, the guy who followed Jesus around for three years, kind of head of the whole disciple band, part of the inner circle, the three, the, the Peter is humble enough to learn from someone else. And not only that, someone who once rebuked him for not living consistent in the gospel, and he bore him no ill will. He calls him our dear brother, Paul. The fact that Peter acknowledges that Scripture is sometimes hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. That is very reassuring that Peter found Scripture hard to understand. But the main thing we need to see here is that people will abuse and twist God's Word. That has always been the case, and it will be until Christ returns to reign. Just because someone quotes Scripture, Just because someone teaches from the Bible does not automatically mean they should be trusted. They don't get a free pass just because they can quote God's word. The Bible has been used and misused to justify all manner of sin and atrocity in history, from slavery to abuse to racism and many other things that God clearly condemns. And so Peter warns us in verse 17, knowing that people will twist and distort scripture, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So, during this time of waiting, we are to stay faithful. We are to take care and hold fast to what is true. And the reason for this, Peter expressed in his last letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Do this so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and here he's talking about what I said earlier about gold being refined. Do it so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, and gold is going to perish even though refined by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What that means is, I was reminded of it just this past week as I was speaking with a brother in the Lord who is not from this church, and I need to make that disclaimer because I need the women of this church to know that none of your husbands were talking to me about, about your diet. But another friend of mine was. <laughs> and, and he was just frustrated because he's like, she's done this before. And, and the problem is she won't stick with it because the meals she's supposed to eat are disgusting. And we talked about how, you know, if we if you could invent a diet program where the meals you're supposed to eat tasted better than anything else, wouldn't people stick with that? And the point is, when, when you choose to leave something like that, you're saying, look, this does not satisfy me. This is not good enough. And so I'm easily tempted away from it. But when you, when you hold on to what is good and true, even, even in the midst of difficulty or when you're tempted to embrace something else, when you hold on to what is good and true, it shows how genuine your faith is and how worthy our God is. So, when people distort scripture and call and tempt you to move away to something else, something dishonoring to God, and you hold fast and you stay faithful, it gives glory to God because it says to others, Look how good He is. I will not let go of this. I can't be tempted away to anything else because this satisfies me. Amen? So, stay faithful during this time. Your faith will be tested, it will be hard there are deceivers, there are untrustworthy people, there is demonic activity, there's all manner of things trying to pull you away from God. And as you stay faithful, it gives glory to God. That's one of the purposes of this time of waiting, is showing through his people how good and worthy he is. But The next thing we're called to do is to grow. Verse 18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is such a key idea in this whole book. That the grace of God is not just to get us to heaven. The grace of God also fits us for heaven. As we're going to sing in just a moment, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, it's grace that brought me safe this far and grace that will lead me home. See, the grace of God makes us grow. The grace of God doesn't just mean forgiveness. Very often we just limit our view of God's grace as, because of His grace, my sins are forgiven. And that is true. But the grace of God doesn't just mean forgiveness. It means that by God's grace, I am now able to do and to be everything, all that God calls me to do and to be. As we saw at the very beginning of this whole series in the first sermon, Second Peter chapter one, verse three, God's divine power has granted, given by grace, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need to live the way we need to live, God has given us by grace. So grow in that grace. But how did we get that grace? Through the knowledge of him who called us. So Peter says, grow in that grace and in that knowledge. Don't become stagnant. Don't just sit there lazily waiting. Knowing Jesus is not just an intellectual knowledge, and the grace of God is not just a theological idea. The grace and the knowledge should move you, shape you, grow you, until the day when His work in you is complete and our anticipation ends and the waiting ends. But until then, this time has a purpose, that we would grow more and more in the image of the God who saved us. Peter concludes his letter with this doxology in verse 18. To him, to Jesus Christ, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Which by itself feels good and natural and right. But in the context of everything we just heard, feels a little like a non sequitur. Uh, It doesn't fit. It doesn't follow the sequence. Uh, Because after all these verses and these chapters uh, that we've been looking at today and in the previous weeks, there's so much emphasis on you being careful. You being diligent, you take care, you grow, you confirm your calling and election, all these things that you need to do, and then in the end, to Jesus be the glory. Absolutely yes, because if you do any of the things that Peter is telling us to do, you only do it because God's power is at work in you. If we endure to the end, it is grace that leads me home, not my ability if you are well established and stable in your faith it is as peter concluded his first letter in first peter 5 the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ god will himself restore you he himself will confirm you he himself will strengthen you he himself will establish you and so as we prepare our hearts for the lord's supper in a minute here i want that truth to linger in your mind as we finish second peter that God himself strengthens you when you are weak. That God himself makes you adequate for the task ahead. That God himself enables you to do the things that he calls you to do. That God leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That God has planned and carries out his mighty plan through you by grace. That God himself bears your punishment on the cross, defeating sin and death for you, that God calls you to himself, sanctifies you by himself, and glorifies you by himself. So yes, absolutely to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. What a fitting way to be reminded that if we are to endure, it is God who himself will make us endure. And that is, is comforting news, people of God. So let us pray, and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Our gracious God, to you be the glory, because what we could not do, you fully accomplished, and what we will not be able to do on our own, you have promised to complete the work that you've started in us. Prepare our hearts to be strengthened in these things by the body and blood of Christ represented to us here. Pray this in the name of the Savior that is ever present with us. Amen. As the elders come forward to assist us, I want to tell you another story. I know some of you have heard this before. It's not original to me. I don't even know if it's a true story or not, but it's a good story that explains this, what we're about to do here. It's a story of a, a grandfather and a young child in a field of dry wheat in a hot, dry summer. And as they're walking through the field, far from any shelter or safety, they see smoke on the horizon coming with the wind, a wall of flame burning up all the dry wheat around them. And they will quickly be consumed by those flames. As the child clings to his grandfather, the grandfather reaches into his pocket and does the most unexpected thing. He lights a match and tosses it just up ahead. And the wind takes that flame and burns the wheat ahead of them. And so as the wall of flame draws closer, there's flame on one side and flame on the other, but the wind keeps it all going that way. And as the flames consume the wheat ahead of them, the grandfather and the child step into the burned out area where there's nothing left to be burned. That's what we celebrate here. That the flames of God's judgment are inevitable and inescapable. And your only hope is to step into a place where that judgment has already fallen. And That's what Christ has done. He has taken the judgment of God already. And as you are in him, as you trust in him and turn to him, there is no other safety from the judgment of God. And we celebrate that rightly, because that is your salvation. But that is your only hope of salvation, because apart from that, all things will be consumed. And so as you take this chance, check your heart. Are you trusting in Christ in reality? Do you believe that he has endured the judgment of God on your behalf, a judgment you deserved? If you don't believe that, this is not for you because to eat and to drink this is to confess that you believe you deserve the judgment of God for your sin and that Christ has taken that judgment in your place. So if you don't believe that, just let the cups go past and and don't feel ashamed of that. Make it a time of reflection and to earnestly consider the gospel as it has been presented to you. And if you call yourself a Christian but it is in name only, and you do not weep over your sin, and you do not make every effort to live consistent with that declaration, this is a warning that God will judge sin. Turn from it as is appropriate for all who are trusting in Christ. And this also represents the unity of the body of Christ, and we are told and warned and cautioned by Christ himself, to first be reconciled to one another before we receive it. So if you are withholding forgiveness from one who has grieved you, or if you have not sought forgiveness from one that you have sinned against, in just a moment I'm going to pray, and I urge you to make it right in your heart and commit to making it right with the one you have offended or who has offended you. But to all who trust in Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church, but you need to be a member of the, the body of Christ, putting yourself under the authority of a church that proclaims and teaches the gospel, you are welcome to this table. Even if you are filled with doubt, if you are dis- distressed over your sin, struggling to obey, this is a reminder that Christ's obedience is all you needed. It is sufficient. The judgment has fallen on Him. Stand in His judgment. amidst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy while I lift up my head. Pray with me.